Care to Share. On this show, I have open and honest conversations with carers. We talk about the challenges, roadblocks, and joys of caring. I am Prudence Granger, and I was the carer for my dad who had early onset Alzheimer's. And I'm currently the care in residence for the Carer Knowledge Exchange. Through my role, I've had the opportunity to reflect on the care experience, as well as connect with many carers. Caring is often hidden and nuanced. This podcast is an opportunity to break down the stigmas around care by hearing firsthand the stories of those who live this experience every day. These conversations touch on some really heavy themes. Please listen with care. Julian and I have been friends for over 12 years. We first met at a party in high school. And throughout our friendship, we've been a really strong support system for one another, and we definitely share a similar zest for life. Julian has been a carer for his brother Luke for most of his life. He now shares the responsibilities with his fiancée, Elise. Today, I'm meeting Julian, Elise, and Luke at their apartment in Dremoyne. When I arrived, Luke was eating breakfast and they were playing chill music, which is a part of their usual morning routine. Today, because it was a special day, Luke had put on his favourite pair of jeans. I'll talk to you after. Yeah? Luke, we'll come and get you when we need you to come out. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice jeans. Julian and Luke grew up in a busy house with their older sister, Daniela, uncles, aunts, parents, and their grandparents. It wasn't just any house. It was a block of townhouses that my uncle Joe had built that we were all going to live within. So like very close with each other and you kind of grow with the community. So there were so many things that we, we would always have something to do because we were all in such close proximity to each other that we kind of shared whatever, you know, whatever the burden of the day was. Like we, we shared it together. And was Luke born at this stage or? No, he wasn't. He would kind of come about a year after this, I think. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, Luke was born and there was a lot of complications. He was born with Down syndrome and cerebral palsy. Funnily enough, those two things were the least of our worries at that point because we didn't know if he was going to, if he was going to survive just the earliest stages of his life. He had a hole in his heart and it was just, you know, it was, it was confusing. How um, old were you when he was born? I was about four and a half. Are your memories quite, because it sounds like they're quite vivid. Yeah, I suspect that there's a level of hypervigilance that I had from a very young age. You know, there's a certain acuity with which I can recall a lot of this stuff. It felt like it's just, you know, happened yesterday. But, you know, that period then, it's quite strange because after Luke was born, it would only be like a year and a half or so before there was, in fact, a massive tumour on Danielle's spine. That was quite difficult when it's your older sister you know, we could potentially lose her. Just from a timeline perspective, so Luke's born. Mm -hmm. He has born cerebral palsy and Down syndrome, Mm -hmm. but that's the least of your concern because there's a hole in his heart. Mm -hmm. There's this, you know, emotional turmoil of is my new younger brother going to survive? Mm -hmm. 
And then you get through that hurdle and all of a sudden Daniela has a tumor on her spine mm-hmm. and it's emergency surgery or, you know, she won't survive. So just in this small space of time, yourself and your whole family go through all this trauma. Yeah. And we spent a whole lot of time in the children's hospital. It kind of feels more home to me than any of the places that I've described, you know, because we, we were there so often. Do you feel like you grew up there? For sure. And in, and sometimes in the, in the best way as well, because, you know, like there was a starlight room. The starlight room had all these kind of video games and, and that was my first experience of video games, really, and colors and like cool, really nice things, you know, because I would go wandering often through the hospital and, you know, find different places and different things. And that was like, they're, they're actually really good memories. It's kind of chaos when you think about all of that time, but certainly formative. I don't think you have Julian as he is now without those kind of formative parts of my life. What did you want to be when you grow up? I feel like I know the answer to this, but I also feel like there's a lot of answers to this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I had a very loose concept, but I knew it is that like I needed to be some form of hero. And I suppose I didn't really know what that meant but through the lens of early 2000s pop culture you know through the ash ketchums the pokemon masters you know the dragon ball z you know hercules the disney film like all of these stories had some form of like archetypal hero who may have come from a really difficult scenario in their youth but found a way to rise above it and to look after whatever community that they were surrounded by so I think I really, re- I bought that message. And obviously, you know, it can be critiqued from any particular angle. It can be critiqued, but there was something about the idea of rising above whatever difficulty you have and then finding a way to give back. You know, I loved the show Lost and I thought Jack, who was the main character, was the best and he was a doctor. So I thought, cool, I think I've got to become a doctor. I think I'm going to find a way to do that. But I could barely sit still so from an academic point of view it was quite difficult you know then we we had lots of conversations and all of a sudden we're in 2011 and and out of nowhere i was just saying well you know what i think i'm going to be an actor you know i I think i'm going to be an actor and i guess it was because there was that part of me that was like well i clearly enjoyed escaping through tv and film as a kid i want to be able to give that back i want to be a part of that and i want to give that back to other kids and of course in, in the years that have followed i've had to break down that conception of well what is a real hero a real hero is actually you know the people who are doing this stuff who are looking after others and who are serving their community in the day-to-day i feel like we've kind of touched on this but what did caring look like when you for caring for luke and i guess to an extent daniela when you were kids so there was so much that was unspoken and kind of not necessarily communicated it was just something that we did implicitly so i think implicitly we just knew whatever it is that we wanted to do individually the collective came first it was the family we've all got to look after each other and understanding that we have to do whatever it is that we can to make sure that everything is okay and to look after everyone there was no boundaries which we've now established a lot of healthy boundaries since we've all come into adult life. But at that point in time, it was just like all hands on deck. Let's all kind of live in service to each other 
and let's focus on the family unit rather than on each other as individuals, which I'm actually quite grateful for now. At the time, I probably didn't realize that it was taking a toll or that you were kind of exerting energy in an invisible way. The idea of going above and beyond is a beautiful thing, but sometimes if you don't know how to express your needs or if you don't know how to express where you're facing difficulty, you will just own whatever it is without doing the necessary things to find outlets or to be able to express or to let go or to detach. So you'll kind of hold on to these things. So I I do think it, it did set up some recipes for disaster when you end up surrounded by people who who would happily take without giving you know you're more than happy to just keep giving 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 until you burn yourself out with that point being a carer being someone who's caught in between two other people who have so such high needs what support do you wish you had what kind of setups because you know you're in the hospital system you're a family who's actively caring for people with high needs how could that system have supported you better It's really hard for me to ask for anything of anyone or anything else. So I don't know how to articulate what could have made it easier. Like it's not coming from a place of expectation, but if I could kind of posit or at least come up with some sort of an idea of how things might have been dealt with better, it's I think about the Make-A-Wish Foundation and I think about what they did for Danielle um, when they gave her her wish. But I also think about what they did for the siblings. They made sure that that I also had an experience that I could go and do. And we went to like, I think it was Wonderland when Wonderland existed. So they kind of, they, they tended to the sibling, which was a really interesting thing because as much as the hospital tried to do it, as much as my parents tried to do it, nothing could really deal with that feeling of, purposelessness that I felt because I wasn't the sick person. Mm. They couldn't really address that. It's very difficult, but it's something that happens when you're caring for someone else is that you find a way, any reason to subjugate your own needs because you're focusing on someone who has extra needs or needs that transcend yours. So I don't know how you would address that, but by them looking after and including me in that, it was definitely a good it was a good step because it made me actually say, oh, what do I want? You know, which is a very different question to what do we need? I think what I'm hearing is if when you as a family went to the hospital with the needs of Daniela, the needs of Luke, rather than looking at them as individuals, they looked at the whole family unit and said, okay, what are these parents going to need to make sure that they're secure and supported? What is their sibling going to need that's going to make sure they're secure and supported and created a treatment plan for the whole family that looked after well-being on a whole spectrum, not just on treating the the crisis? Yeah, see, that's an incredibly well-articulated and comprehensive assessment of what I've said. Uh, I do think you need to address the whole organism, the whole ecosystem. When there is an environment where someone requires extra needs, you cannot isolate it just down to one individual because by very virtue of what a family unit is, there is going to be an increased expectation of and calling for duty of everyone in that environment. Mm. So it is impossible to just focus on the one person who has extra needs. You have to focus on all of the ancillary kind of family members. 
throughout our friendship you've had your peaks and valleys with your mental health um, and your own struggles tell me a little bit about that struggle yeah so I think it would be very easy for me to just gloss over and live as if everything now that feels so effortless was effortless in its kind of unearthing but there was a whole you know I, I loved my childhood and I, and I was very happy, but there was a whole decade, I think, of having to unpack and address a lot of those unspoken things to reconcile a lot of those tolls that had gone by, you know, in an invisible manner, you know, to, to deal with the debt that had been accrued mentally and emotionally and, and to start to actually partition and compartmentalize and create boundaries. You know, these things were so foreign to me. There was this word you used earlier in the interview where you said a hypervigilance. Mm. And I guess that's kind of a symptom of PTSD to an extent and the trauma. Do you think that was kind of what was the cause or what do you think it was that was kind of happening? Well, I've had to deal with PTSD, you know, like it's something in therapy that I've had to really work through. So a lot of the methods that we've used were those which you would probably use on someone who had come back from a war or something. I guess I had been living life with a cup that was so full of water that like the littlest thing would send the water over the edge. So I think at that point in time, through my, my late teens and early 20s, was when all of it was starting to come to the surface, was when my lack of finding expression or lack of coping mechanisms or lack of hobbies, lack of a life was revealed. It was like, okay, cool. You cannot just go from all of this adversity to then, well, I'm going to become something great and I'm going to succeed at this far off point. You can't live between those two poles. There's going to come an eventual time where you actually have to start being in your life and in your body. And that was what I was going through. And we were then seeing the ripple effects of that. You know, the people that I cared about were seeing the ripple effects of that because I would just disappear. I would just become reactive. I would explore like anger and frustration for the first time and express it rather than subduing myself or, or subjugating my needs. Yeah, it was, it was pretty, pretty dark time. Um, yeah. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, it was very very difficult mm. to to witness and be a part of and then all of a sudden there was this like shift and I remember and it was like even the way that you communicated with me the way you actively you know sought to spend time with me it was like this shift had happened what made you shift what made you start to actively work on your well-being you know, I, I can't begin that conversation without talking about Elise because I think one of the things that she had always worked so hard at was getting me to address these holes within me, to meet these needs, to find this baseline, to look after myself, to nurture myself, to take help, to actually communicate and express these things. I think one of the best things and one of the worst things that happened was that I decided I was going to be an actor out of nowhere. When fighting season came through, I think what happened was, and this was like 2016 maybe, I, I was able to hit one of the biggest milestones that I could possibly surmise or like want for myself so early on. I was like 22, maybe I was 23, 23. But 
you know, all of a sudden this, this journey had reached a peak where like, it's just a massive network show. It's a lead role. It's a character that's perfect. And all of a sudden I'm an actual, I'm an actor. I've done all these shows leading up to it, but like, this is like a lead role. So what happened was I felt this emptiness and it was like, wait, but I reached one of the things, but there was an emptiness. And so that caused all sorts of reactions within me that I, I did not comprehend or understand because I couldn't just wish away to a snapshot in the future anymore and say, well, when I get there, everything will be okay. So I actually had to start addressing the problem. I actually had to start listening to a lot of the things that Elise had told me or had pushed me to do because I couldn't just put it off anymore and say, well, at a later date, when I get to that point, everything will just magically, you know, I'll be at the... At, Act three in a Disney film where everything just feels great. You know, I have to actually start engaging and doing these things. It's funny because it's like everyone always says that once I have this thing, once I reach this point, I will be happy. But Mm. the reality is everything you have to be happy exists within you. You need to do the work within. Otherwise, everything that happens outside is empty. Yeah. Yeah. To live in the transitionary periods. It's, it's interesting because there was a transformation over 2017, 2018, 2019. I went and lived in Los Angeles. But I think it wasn't until I, I went away for a year and lived on my own in quite an isolated manner in, in pretty difficult circumstances that I was able to finally come out of it because I was completely on my own for the first time. I couldn't mm-hmm. really care for others. I couldn't do anything because I like my own safety and, and my you know, quality of life was seriously in doubt. So I had to look after myself Mm. and yeah, I would say 2019 is where the the full transition happened and and I kind of came out the other side finally, you know. It's like Um, that saying your whole world, you create your whole world by virtue of what you focus on. mm. So if you're focusing on everything but yourself, yourself is going to be neglected. Let's bring Elise into the picture. I'm going to ask this question to Elise because we've heard enough from Julia. (laughs) How did you guys meet? So Julian was working at a shop in General Pants in Parramatta and I just got my first job in hospitality so I needed an outfit. So I was like, oh, quickly just go into General Pants and look for something. And I was very shy at this point. I was 19, he was 17, and um, I walked in and he greeted me at the door and just stared right into my soul. And I kind of looked up at him and he asked me if I needed help and I was just like, no, I'm good, thanks, and I walked off, but he kept following me around. Then he came to me with outfit options and was like, oh, I think this would look great on you. I was like, can you leave me alone? I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll try it on. <laughs> so I went and tried it on and he was just loitering around and I was like, oh, here we go. And then I went to pay and he gave me a discount. And then he gave me an ultimatum, basically. Uh, I I was banned from having my phone on the Yes. And I had two formal warnings. So you had to give me your number and then you gave me an ultimatum to contact you. And I was like, sure, you do this with all the girls. Um, Anyway, I obviously messaged him and we ended up hanging out as friends. How exactly did you transition from friends to romantic I think when he came back into my life, when he contacted me in uh, 2015 and we caught up, he was in such a bad place 
and I have a very mothering, nurturing nature and I already really cared about him. So it was like our friendship at that point, kind of the basis of it was like, I'm here for you. I'm going to help you. And we just trusted each other. And yeah, he was going through a lot of just a bad time and I just helped him through it. And I think that was how the foundation kind of was built because it was like, let me be here for you. And we just went through so much stuff like psychologically, mentally together. And I don't know, we just helped each other. And I think eventually that turned into love. did it go from like okay you're both in a relationship you're creating this structure you're working on your well-being together to then I guess Elise you becoming a part of Julian's family and essentially Luke's care Mm. well so 2019 as he said before he lived in LA so we were still together doing long distance about six months into that I went over to LA to visit and then we got engaged and then when you came back that was kind of when the family and everyone was like, oh, you're you're engaged, you're here, you're both together, let's celebrate. So that was the beginning of that. And then shortly after Were we- involved in the family much before the engagement? Not as much. It hadn't really been established yet. It wasn't a strong foundation. So it wasn't until he got back that we really started building that. So after he got back from LA, we moved in together. So we were living together and then, yeah, during COVID, Luke started staying over. So he would come over and he'd want to stay over and have a sleepover. So that's how that started. He just kind of loved hanging out with us and doing what we did. And when the gyms reopened, we ended up taking him to the gym and going to Zumba together and doing dance classes. And he just was, we hadn't seen him like that happy and thriving and you know moving around doing different things that we didn't really know that he could do I think it's interesting because you said before you and Luke since you first met had a special connection and I think in witnessing the two of you together you have a beautiful bond and it's almost like this shorthand you don't have to say anything and and there's this beautiful interaction and understanding so can you tell us a bit more about that relationship well I remember the first time I met Luke was at their house in their very cool cinema room (laughs) and Luke came in and I mean I knew he had disabilities but I didn't know to what extent if he could talk I I had no idea I had no expectation but he just came in and sat with me and just held my hand and it was just like I don't know it just felt like he was my brother and that's kind of how we are now I mean we even look more alike than Julian and Luke so when Luke and I are out people are like oh your brother and we're just like yeah you have the same eyes we have the same eyes similar hair color and yeah I guess the way that we are with each other is very sibling like we do have our own sort of way of communicating that we just get along and we don't really have to say much and even when he's talking to other people and they can't understand him I know what he's trying to say even if they if we can't hear it it's pretty special the decision for Luke to come and live with you guys what was that process, that transition like? And did it cause any kind of, I guess, 
friction with you and Julian's family or? Not really because when he started staying over, he'd been coming and going for like it would start with one night and then it would be two nights and then it would be three because he'd be like just having so much fun and we were, you know, not really working because it was lockdown. So we would just keep each other company and he'd stay over so we could have fun. And then, yeah, it ended up being a year that we had been doing that and it just felt so natural that it didn't really feel like I was a carer. I didn't really see it as that or it didn't really occur to me that that was what I was doing. It was just like, Luke's here, Luke's staying over. Like this is, he does have special needs. He needs help with extra things and, but it just became so natural that it didn't feel like that's what we were doing. Like it just felt like his brother's here and we're hanging out. Yeah, it's good for him. He's got his, like, he gets a massage every Monday. So he has that to look forward to and go home and hang out with his parents on Sundays, has his massage on Monday, then comes back and we're back here doing Zumba, going for walks, going to the cafe. Yeah, lots of community integration that he otherwise wouldn't be able to. Which has just been the best thing for him in like his communication skills have improved. He's got more, he's more confident. He never used to really be like that before so it's and you're facilitating his core goal of wanting to be um like an actor you know and yeah. running his instagram and having him do all sorts of you guys did an ad together yeah yeah done a lot together i think as well it's just like hearing the dynamic of what you guys have created it's it's a balanced lifestyle in care in that you know you've got this natural relationship where you can work together work on his goals but also then have that balance, that network where he has the time with his parents, you guys get the time that you need to recuperate and have your own relationship. And I feel like that's super important and not what a lot of people get in care. Mm. And I think sometimes it gets lost that really caring is a network. And so often the stigma of it is that it's one person. And so someone looking at this externally would think that, you know, it is all you. And yes, you're doing the lion's share, but I think perhaps why it is, you know, more easeful, one for a better word, is because you have that network and that support system. Mm. I know as well, Daniela, he sometimes goes to Daniela's as well. Yeah, so if Julian and I have, you know, if we've got a lot of things on or we've got to be here when I've got to be there and he's doing this and I'm doing that, it's we've got Daniela just around the corner as well where he can go and hang out. So for him, he's got our house, sister's house and home. So he just loves having the flexibility and a sense of autonomy that he never had before and being able to give that to him and encourage him to do things on his own that he's capable of. It's just the best. So can you take us through what a typical day with Luke looks like and, you know, what it is you guys have actively done to make sure that he has this quality of life? Mm kind of took us a while to establish a routine and like what works and we've obviously had to change the way that we do things with the way that he does things and then adapting on both ends. So a typical day at the moment would be we wake up every morning, we go and get coffee together, we do our morning journaling, which for Luke is we've got him a little diary where he can just draw He's never really done that before, but to him, he's like, he's drawing a picture or he's writing something, even though he's can't write, but he's expressing himself in that way. He's socializing with people at the cafe. We come back, we have breakfast together. 
we listen to music, Luke will always put YouTube on and have a dance. Then we'll go on a walk. Then we will go to the gym. We'll go and do a Zumba class. And then he's also got drama. So we go together to do drama on some days and we'll go to the pool. We'll go swimming, whatever he needs, like we'll go and do even just shopping, things like shopping, the simple things, the day-to-day things that we would do. He, in him being a part of that, he feels like he's, what's the word? Well, he's he's integral to the whole community, like that we yeah. have the ecosystem. He's he's a vital. He's part. not just a boy who needs looking after. He's more, and he he loves that. He thrives off that. And so he'll do like meditation and yeah. breath work if when he wakes up yeah. when I'm doing it. He'll come and sit with Julian, and he'll sit on the floor, and he'll just copy what Julian's doing, or he'll sit there in the yoga pose, or he'll he'll take it very seriously. And then at nighttime as well, we all have dinner together. We always try to have dinner together. And he does a sleep meditation before bed. And then same bedtime every night, 8 o'clock, winding down. And that's pretty much it. What has that meant for you, I guess, in your personal life? What difficulties have you found in this caring role? What perhaps feels limiting or doesn't feel limiting for you now that you've chosen this? The beginning, it was like, because I, I'm the eldest, I've got younger siblings and I was always in the mothering role in my friendships and relationships and everything. So it was very natural for me to put my needs aside and be like, I have to take care and I have to do everything for him and be very controlling. It was just very natural. So there was a point where I would get frustrated and be like, oh, hang on, I'm not actually getting what I need out of this. I'm not expressing how I feel. I'm not taking a moment for myself. I'm not asking Julian to be like, hey, can you just watch him for a bit while I go for a walk, you know? It got to the point where it got a bit overwhelming. But um, after we talked about it, it was like, okay, so maybe we need to do this and maybe we need to do that. And if I'm feeling this way, maybe I can talk about it and we can share the responsibility and And then I kind of zoomed out and I was like, that's when I realised Luke doesn't need, you know, he he can never be on his own. He needs constant care, but I can change my routine to work around his. So for a long time, I was actually studying at home while looking after him. So I would change my routine to be like, when he has lunch at 12 o'clock, I will take my break. When he's eating, you need to, I need to like cut his food and watch him eat and make sure he doesn't choke or anything like that. So it's just a change in routine and making sure that I expressed my needs and that I took time for myself to find the balance and not trying to control everything and just stepping back and taking time yeah, to not get so overly involved or anxious about things or worried or getting stressed, just taking time. not completely sacrificing yourself. Exactly, yeah. And to go into old habits. Because that wasn't necessary because that wouldn't help anyone. Yeah. From what I'm hearing is for you, your well-being is having good boundaries and not losing yourself in care. Yes, because if I can do that very easily. So now that I'm aware of that and we've kind of lived through that already, I will sense when I'm getting to a point and we can circumvent that and just communicate and ask for support. Basically, I'll be like, hey, Daniela, what are you doing? Are you at home? Can I drop Luke off for a bit while I go and do X, Y, Z? 
And then she'll be like, yeah, like, oh, I can come over here. And like, it's just asking for help and communicating and not feeling guilty for expressing what you need. And in regards to your relationship, how has this care dynamic impacted your personal relationship, romantic relationship? I think when life is busy and when we all go, 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 and Julian's off acting, producing, doing a million things, and I'm, you know, looking after Luke and we're doing a million things, going here, going there. If we don't prioritise time to come together and decompress and talk about our day and talk about what happened or talk about what didn't happen, you know, just giving each other the time, if it gets to the point where we haven't done that for a while, things start to fester and we don't realise consciously that we've done it, but, but it's getting to a point where we haven't actually stopped. You know, that can be very stressful and it can create a kind of chaos but we're at the point now where we've realised that, okay, it's very important to prioritise time, whether it's at our morning coffee or over dinner, that we just need to be with each other in each other's space, say what we need to say, express what we need to express so that that doesn't happen. And I think it took a while for us to get there, but it's been a really good learning curve and it's forced us both to to just prioritise our needs and set boundaries with each other and which is probably really healthy in terms of it expedited the process of maturation, like, you know, how to become a father. Well, it doesn't seem very difficult when you've kind of essentially been in that role for a long time. Which is a recent realisation you've had of like, oh, I'm actually already doing this. Yeah. I already know how to do this, so it's not that scary. Yeah. Julian and I had this reflection on a walk the other day talking about your dynamic as a relationship and the dynamic of caring for Luke. And I think a lot of relationships, are, you know, that are really strong and solid once children get in the mix are very challenged and can kind of make or break. But for you guys, it's like, oh, that's going to be easy. It's like we've already done all of the work. Like not to say that Luke is like a baby, but having him here means that he we need to focus on his needs and make our needs work around it. The dynamics of that are the same as having kids. It's like if you've got the communication, you're both on the same page, then you make it work. And from like from a career perspective as an actor, as a producer, like I have spent so long trying to elicit certain communication or get certain things out of Luke that were otherwise like inarticulatable, like he couldn't necessarily express them. So it's like when I get on set as an actor, it's so easy for me to to kind of be present and to to nurture the other person or give the other person something to try and get something back. And then when you're producing, because we've focused so much on structure and having like healthy routines here, you can do it from a top-down level as a producer as well because you're setting a foundation and you're making sure that everyone is tended to and that everyone feels a part of something. Yeah, so these things just come naturally because of what we do at home that benefit us both in our personal lives. Which is a real benefit to having been in a caring position for so long. It it certainly reaps the rewards now. Mm. And what's something that you guys are looking forward to as a family? I think it's going to be pretty exciting as a family as we kind of have another generation coming after, you know, Daniela and I. I think that's going to be cool how we navigate that you know, when Luke's going to have, like, nephews and, and nieces and 
how he's going to be able to interact. That's going to be a cool stage of life for him, like as an uncle. He's very excited. Yeah, I think he it's going to be He keeps manifesting it, saying, I can't wait to be an uncle. So I guess for the future would be doing exactly what we do now, but getting married, having kids, and probably still having Luke around to be part of that and be engaged in, in the transition and that home environment. And how it will inform those kids, you mm. know, what they will gain by being carers themselves to some degree, or at least learning the kind of empathy that's necessary and making the observations that will help them then pay it forward. Look, we want to talk about you. You've got to let Prudence ask you a question. I just found out you're excited to become an uncle. Are you excited for that? I am I am I, I will be nickel. So I'm so excited to be an uncle. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be pretty cool. And um, I am the fire. I'm so, so excited. excited. I love you. I love you. Lucky you tested if it was Lucky, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well done. And no, it's done now. It's finished. Yeah, it's finished. Now you can say thank you. Woo!